Welcome to the No Water Methodist Church Podcast, where we hope to encourage you in your spiritual journey so that you may be a blessing to your local church and to the world. Last week we ended with reading verse 1. Paul said... Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Is he being full of himself? If a, if a mason takes a young person under their wing and says, I'm a, I'm a master mason, if you want to be an apprentice, watch me and see how it's done. Is that mason full of himself? Okay, same thing with the Christian faith. Christian faith is a feeling, but it's more than a feeling. Christian faith is more than memorizing scripture. Christian faith is a way of life that everything that we do here is aimed at teaching us to do. So Paul is dealing with people. They know the scriptures. They know the history. Otherwise, he wouldn't be explaining things the way that he does. They're just not living the right way. So he's saying, watch how I live, and it'll make sense to you. Stop doing what's right in your own eyes. Watch me. And one of the things that we can immediately do is go, oh, Paul's so full of himself. Oh, he wasn't sanctified. I don't have to listen to him. That's the voice of Satan. You're not going to listen if you think he was full of himself. He was humble. He'd given up on himself, and he said, watch me to see what that looks like. Verse 2, I praise you. He's not talking to God. He's talking to the community in Corinth, the church. I praise you for remembering me in everything and holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. So the Christian faith is more than the scriptures. There were a lot of traditions that got handed on by the apostles, including Paul, to all these new churches that started. And it looks like they are maintaining the traditions that he gave. However, it also seems that they're starting to question, do we really have to? In which case, it's important to remind ourselves, Satan, whenever he approached Eve, asked that question, did God really say This is what they're doing with the instructions Paul gave. So verse 3, he says, But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. So immediately we know why this is politically incorrect. This is talking about men and women as though they are different. And not just different, this notion of headship is very threatening because when we talk about someone being the head of the organization, they stand at the top of it, right? They're the boss, and it's your job to follow. But let's, he says, the head of every man is Christ, the head of every woman is her man, and then the head of Christ is God the Father. Is Christ less than the Father? You, if you're a good Trinitarian, you know that they are the same in substance, equal in power and glory. So this is not establishing superiority between one and the other. It's establishing the dynamics of a relationship done rightly. So it's saying that men's job is to be submissive to Christ Jesus. Submission is typically understood to be a feminine virtue. Well, the church is female, and it's the job of males to submit to God. And then females are called to submit to men as Christ submits to the Father. Did Christ submit to the Father? Yes. And some people might say, well, it's easier to submit to the Father. He's more just than my stupid husband. But the thing is, when Christ submitted, that got him killed, didn't it? An embarrassing, painful, torturous death. And so whenever it says that we are called to submit, modeling with Christ being the model, then that's setting the standard for right relationship for us. And of course, we've talked about this for weeks, about how in the Christian faith, God figures in first, others second, we come third. 
if we are saved, if, if we are in God's hand, nothing can take us from God's hand. We shouldn't be afraid. We shouldn't be selfish. We should pour ourselves out for God and others. Amen? This is, this is what we've already laid out. It's a hard word, especially when we're talking about marriage, because anyone who's been married knows it's really hard. If anyone reads my Substack, I put one out yesterday on just how Sarah Beth and I, first year of marriage, man, we fought all the time. A lot of people never figure out how to fight well. But what the scriptures establish is, you're not going to agree, what do you do about it? For a lot of people in marriage, if you disagree, then you are going to yell louder than them. You're going to be nastier than them. You're going to do what you want, and they're just going to have to deal with it. That's not the model you get here. You get Jesus submitted to the Father. Men need to submit to Jesus. Do you think he's serious about that part? Yes. And then women submit to the men. It's really hard. It's really hard. It's, it's hard for all of us. Is anybody here because the Christian faith is just oh so easy and everybody else who doesn't do it is just idiots? What's wrong with them? You know? No, uh, life is not about doing what's easy. In fact, the most rewarding things are often the hardest things. Now, Christ's burden is light. He does all the work for us. Without him, we couldn't do anything. But he does require that we participate in our own salvation. And this is what it looks like. I actually, you know, this might be a little self-interested and God condemn me. You don't have to. But I actually think it's harder for men in some ways to be completely submissive to God and then lead your wife and your family. It means you're switching roles. I'm submissive here. I give in. I don't question. And then here I have to lead. And in both cases, it's uncomfortable for different reasons. But then I feel really sorry for women who are married to idiots like me, you know? So it's, it's really hard. And there is virtue that comes from practicing this. This is, this is, not, this is not easy or fun. I'm going to go on. Verse 4. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head, un, uh, no, not uncovered, with his head covered, dishonors his head. That's weird. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head un, uncovered dishonors her head. So men dishonor their head, Christ, if their heads are covered. If women's heads aren't covered, they dishonor their head. So right off the bat, are women and men different. There doesn't seem to be any way to interpret this. And the, the, this new thing of self-identification, oh, I identify as a woman, that's, that's not in here. It's just, this is the kind of body God gave you, so this is the role that you have. Seems really unfair to some people. We live in an age right now where people think that they should be able to switch, but then in that case, what does sex even mean? What does gender even mean? And the two are not different. I know people talk like they are. It loses its meaning whenever they become interchangeable, doesn't it? Men and women are not the same. Are, is one made in God's image more than the other? No, that can't be right. We're of equal value in God's sight. Even so, the dynamics between us and God and us and each other is different. The scandalous thing here is Paul is still saying that women in the assembled body can preach and prophesy. In the ancient Roman context, there were all kinds of other cults to, to other gods, Generally, women were not even welcome in the same room as men. If they were, they were hidden away in some confined area. It was a man-only thing. They had women's temples that were outside of the city center. What Paul does here is he walks this middle line of saying men and women are absolutely different. Even so, they're of equal worth. So this separate but equal thing, in some sense, it didn't work racially in the United States of America, but spiritually it seems to be the undergirding theology here. Men and women are different of equal value, though. 
It is the same as having her head shaved, he says. So in their culture, a woman shaving her head was uh, seen as shameful and disgusting. So, verse 6, for if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off, and in that culture it was, uh, her head shaved, then she should cover her head. So, one thing to take note of here, he's not saying if a woman is going to be in Christian worship and just be there, you got to cover your head. He's not saying that. He's saying if she is praying or prophesying, why on earth would this be? He's going to talk about it in a minute. So that's just a rhetorical question. Keep that in mind. Verse 7. A man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Now, he's talking about the creation story in Genesis 2, right? God created Adam out of the dust of the earth, and then he created Eve out of Adam's side. It's usually translated rib, but it's the same word as like a side of a building. I'm glad somebody finds me soothing. So woman was created out of man. There's a, di a directionality here. Even so, Paul has already established that directionality doesn't make a statement as to one's worth. So we need to be clear all the way through this. Women are not worth any less than men. They don't occupy God's image any less than men. There's just a directionality. There's some steps on the way for, a step on the way for women that's not for men. Oh, where are we? Verse 10, I think. No, verse 9. Eight? Okay, verse 8. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. No, we did that. Verse 9, neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. He's not saying that men don't need women. He's going to correct this in a minute, but he's saying the reason woman was in, invented, created by God, is because man needed a helpmate. The Hebrew word there being azer. If you don't know it, an azer, it can have a subservient role, but also God is called an azer. He's called our help, our rock, our strength. So... Uh, she is his helpmate, his azer. Verse 12, for as woman came from man, nope, verse 11, sorry, nevertheless, in the Lord, verse 10, thank you, Johnny. I'm very tired, y'all, I'm very sorry. Verse 10, it is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. What is that talking about? Prior to today, prior to me reading this big book written by people smarter than me, I thought it was that, uh, reference to Genesis 6 where the angels that are watching they see these very attractive women and they decide to come down to earth and have babies with them who turn out being monster uh, Nephilim uh, giants uh, I always thought that's what this was about but then the, my commentary here pointed to a scripture in Leviticus where it talked about how important it is for men to be ritually purified before they go into battle because there's going to be angels with them and if they are not pure the angels will not fight with them in fact they might fight against them so the notion here being that we have to be very concerned about the purity of the body because we are either glorifying God or we are glorifying ourselves or we are shaming God or ourselves. Worship is all about God. It's all about glorifying him. There's not room for shaming and embarrassing and scandalizing him. There's no room for us to go, oh, I'm so great. And part of what's going on here is covering a woman's head because women are beautiful distractingly so and this is something that people in all cultures not all cultures the ancient cultures remarked on yes there's such a thing as beautiful men we have legends of adonis and narcissus and all these guys but even so women have a way that they impact group dynamics that men don't 
Even if I became the most attractive man ever born, I could lead a church and y'all could control yourselves. It don't work the same for women who get up and lead. We're going to come back to this in 1 Corinthians 14. For a hundred years, we've been trying to integrate women into male spaces. It's my opinion. It hasn't gone very well. There's been a lot of impropriety, a lot of bad behavior. And that's not to say there wasn't any before. The question is, what are we incentivizing? And if I let my kids play by a railroad track going, ah, that train's no threat, then there's a point where I'm responsible for one getting hit by a train. Isn't that right? When we continue to invite men and women to look at themselves interchangeably and step into the same role as though there's no difference whatsoever in a group dynamic, can we really be surprised when, say, the Presbyterian church here falls apart because the pastor was sleeping with the administrative assistant? No, I actually think, I think it was the organist. This happened in the 60s or 70s. Anybody know this story? Can we really be surprised when, in our own church, there are people that slip into impropriety with someone who's not of the same uh, they're not married to. In St. Paul's United Methodist Church in Oklahoma, in Tulsa, there was a married woman and a married man. They're married to other people. They fell in love with each other and they began an affair that everybody in the church knew about and they were there every Sunday. It's not a church. As they came and they had communion, it was a lie. And I can easily say that about them, but in what ways is our church guilty of flirting with sin, giving in to sin? What Paul seems concerned about here is, yes, women are equal with men. However, if you put them in positions that tempt men, you are going to scandalize the church. So women can stand in the assembly and prophesy and pray. Absolutely. However, if they're going to do that, don't invite the male gaze. So in the early Methodist documents, there was uh, clear rules. Don't wear jewelry. That's from the Bible, by the way. Don't wear jewelry. Don't wear finery. Don't wear nice stuff because worship is not about you, right? I would tell the same thing to men, but nobody cares about men wearing that crap, do they? It's women who are distractingly beautiful, not just for men, but also women are distracted by each other's beauty. If, if their presentation is not inviting the male gaze, it's inviting a status competition with other women. Anybody familiar with this? I'm sure none of you have ever participated in it, but this is something endemic to women, this kind of pecking order thing. Worship needs to be an expression of our unity in Christ and that he is the center of our lives. And if worship becomes something that's about us, then we have warped something that's supposed to be pure. Coming back to the angels, we are warned that if we're not faithful with these instructions, we are offending the angels. Do you think that there are consequences that come from offending angels? If you don't, I would encourage you to read your Old Testament again, in particular Genesis. If you don't know, Sodom and Gomorrah was a direct byproduct of angels being offended at their lack of righteousness. The thing that we need to reflect on now is we have, as humans, this natural tendency to go, well, I love Jesus, so everything I do must be right. Anybody familiar with this? How can you preach against this pastor? I do this. Well, maybe you shouldn't. I was expecting to get a little more pushback yesterday from my article. I talked about the importance of good sleep habits. If Maybe I didn't get pushback because y'all didn't read it. But even so, there are a lot of things that seem, oh, do you really have to be that particular, Jeffrey? Is that really so important? Y'all remind me, what was it that got Moses excluded from the promised land? What did he do wrong? He just spoke, right? He, he, he did what God said, but then he added a little of his own flair. 
That's really hard for me. We want a God who's gracious. Oh, he sees my good intentions. He'll let me in even if I'm disobeying instructions. What Paul is warning is, I gave you instructions. Obey the instructions. We, we take a lot of comfort that sometimes we shouldn't. That's all I'm saying. So whether or not you agree with me on the particulars of what we may or may not do right or wrong, it's important for us to have that humility to reflect on how we do our Christian faith and be able to question, am I doing everything as I ought? Or do I need to listen more seriously to the Bible? Verse 13, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? When he says judge for yourselves, he's not saying, you, you just do whatever you want. He's saying, I've told you the truth, now use your common sense. There's no point in him laying all that out if he's saying, just do whatever's right in your own eyes. That's, that makes no sense. He says, uh, uh, verse 14, does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has, woman has long hair, it is her glory, for long hair is given her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. So the part I haven't said yet is in the ancient world, we have a lot of explicit writings from non-Christians that they looked at women's long hair as sexually attractive. So in our culture today, you know, women usually reveal other things for men to look at. In that ancient culture, they did all kinds of th things with hair that got men's attention. So that's why he's talking about how it's her glory and to be kept for her head, her husband. Now, I've heard critiques from this. I'm not going to say who, because why, why does it matter? But um, one, one woman responded, well, even if we cover things up that are seductive, men are dogs and they're going to find something else to be attracted to. And that is true. It is true. There's some, you know, Sarah Beth, she originally started color, covering her hair partly because what's in the Bible, but also partly because there were a couple creepy guys in the church in Idaho that kept remarking on her appearance. She didn't like it. Now, did it stop? Did she never get anyone to remark again? No, but it cut down. She's done her part to help other people not stumble. There have been some other people I heard of one recently left this church and bad-mouthed Sarah Beth. They said, oh, she covers her hair. She just thinks she's so pretty. She's going to cause all these men to stumble. Preacher's wife so full of herself. First off, I have a beautiful wife. Secondly, she's being obedient. And if you don't like that, if that threatens you, then that's your issue, not hers. Verse 16, if anyone wants to be contentious about that, that's if somebody wants to argue, if you want to argue, hey, Corinth might be one thing, you know, uh, Greece might, you know, uh, Jerusalem might be one thing, another, but in Corinth we can do things different. He says, uh, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. This, this is the only way to be the church. There is no other church. This is not, you don't have latitude on this. Your church needs to protect the difference of men and women while maintaining their equality in God's eyes. So, for over a thousand years, Christian men and women, they were in the same space, but women sat on one side, men sat on another. It's only a couple hundred years ago that we started integrating, and I remember being in seventh grade in the church, in Claremore First Church, and I didn't hear a word the preacher said for about two years because I was looking at girls. Seriously. So the question is, are we causing one another to stumble? That's only one way that we can cause one another to stumble. Verse 17. In the following... Oh, man, it's already noon. 
I, uh, the culture of this church for a long time has been that we only worship for an hour. I'm regularly pushing you on that. However, today, if I covered the rest of the chapter, I think I would be upsetting people. And I don't like upsetting people. I, I might not should care, but I do. So what I would like to do is um, I'd like to go ahead and conclude worship for people who, who have other things that you want to do, other places you want to go. Uh, we'll sing together. I'll give a benediction. We'll take a little break. We're not going to be watching anybody who leaves, but anyone who stays, I'll preach through the remainder on the Lord's Supper. Then we will have the Lord's Supper. And if it's just me and Sarah Beth and a couple people, I'm not going to be resentful, but uh, we need to keep up a good pace. There's a lot for us to cover. So, Sarah Beth, are you okay with that? Okay, let's stand and sing our closing hymn. Number 368, My Hope is Built. Brothers and sisters, we've heard the good news, and that is that God died for each and every one of us. He doesn't practice favoritism, not between the rich and the poor, and not between men and women, not between slave and free. The uh, rich and poor is going to come in on the section after this, so I'm going to exhort you, if you have to go, check out the live stream later on what you missed. We'll have it, we'll have it uh, posted. But we should take great comfort in the fact that God doesn't practice favoritism, that the blood of Christ Jesus was shed for you and me every but much every bit as much as everybody else across the ages, and his blood is as powerful for us as for every other disciple along the way. Amen? Amen. Glory to God whose power working in us can do infinitely more than we could ask or imagine. Glory to him from generation to generation in the church and on our Lord Jesus Christ forever and ever. Amen. Amen.
playtime. So I'm going to start preaching because this section that we're dealing with directly deals with how to have the Lord's Supper. And um, it's one of those things that we just do the way we do it and we don't think about it. We don't question it. And whether or not we do everything perfectly, I think it's appropriate to examine how we do communion in light of what Paul says here. So we are in chapter 11, verse 17. Listen to the word of God. In the following directives, I have no praise of you. This is harsh language, right? For your meetings do more harm than good. Are you familiar with this mentality that goes, yeah, I know we're kind of screwing things up, but, you know, we're doing more good than harm, right? We have this way of justifying ourselves. He says, nope, what you're doing is so bad, you're doing more harm than good. And he's talking about the way they have communion. Verse 18, in the first place, shh, that's my child, I can do that. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. Of course he believes it. We read chapter 1. People are dividing over, you know, I follow Kephas. I follow Apollos. Verse 19, no doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So he's saying that when the people assemble, it's clear who God loves and who he doesn't. We're going to hear more about that in a minute, but... One of the quotes that I like is John MacArthur. He's a reformed pastor. I don't agree with everything he says, but he says, people say doctrine divides, and I agree. Doctrine divides good from bad, light from dark, truth from fiction. That's the whole point of doctrine. So then, verse 20. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. This would be a surprise to them. They're having wine. They're having bread. They're gathering together. They're talking about Jesus. He's saying, it ain't the Lord's Supper. It's a counterfeit. It's a mockery. You're doing more harm than good. If you were in the audience that he's writing to, would you be kind of freaking out? I know I would. You mean this communion thing I've been doing every Sunday? And remind yourselves, they were having communion every Sunday. Because whether or not you had a good priest preaching a good message, Christ is always good. And he said, drink of this, all of you. Eat and drink of this as often as you drink it. Partake of this always as often as you drink it. The central act of worship for over a thousand years was communion. So they're having communion every week. Whether or not it's on the Lord's Day, he doesn't tell us. It probably was. But he's saying, this thing that you're doing every week, it's a, 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 what what do they call it whenever um, white people pretend to be black and do those uh, minstrel shows? He's saying, what you're doing is pretty much a minstrel show. As a Christian, you're pretending to be a Christian, but the way you're doing it, you're screwing it up so bad, it's just offensive. The Lord is offended with you. I've used that metaphor a couple of times. People don't like it. All right, so um, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. Verse 21, for when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have your own homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. So instantly we're learning that they did communion different from us because this is a full meal, right? It's saying there are people who show up and they get drunk, so they're drinking real wine first off. 
But secondly, some get full and others are still starving. Why would some people be showing up later than others? Do they love Jesus less? Scholars have concluded, I've, I've heard nothing but this explanation, maybe there's an alternative explanation, that the people showing up late are working class people. They have jobs that they have to be at and they can't get there till a certain hour. The rich people who don't have to work say, hey, we're hungry, we're here, let's go ahead and eat. The poor folk, they can come in when they want, we'll leave some for them. And he's going, no, 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 no. The whole point of communion is to all be one, to be the family of God. No one is more important than anybody. We believe in the priesthood of all believers. Everyone is equal. So let me tell you, let me ask you, the way we do communion, does anyone get special treatment here? No. I think we passed this test. Everybody gets the same amount. So we don't have wine. Some people think that's a big deal. Methodists don't. We don't have gluten in our bread. Some people think that's a big deal. Methodists generally don't. Um, but that's a good question to ask. And hey, if you, you think you know something that I don't, talk to me outside of worship. I'm, I'm open. I'm not set in my ways. Um, verse 23, for I received from the Lord. He's talking about Jesus, I think. He generally calls Jesus. What I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I say these words every time we, we eat the communion, right? In the same way, after the supper, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Once upon a time, I was having communion with the clergy in uh, Idaho, where I lived. And the guy officiating said nothing about the sacrifice of Christ Jesus or his atoning blood at all. He just talked about how beautiful God is. They passed me the bread, and I said, I can't eat this. This is not communion. It caused problems. This offended him, but it should be offensive. He says, when you eat this bread and this drink, this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. You're going to have a meal about the Lord's death and not talk about the Lord's death, not talk about what he did on the cross. That's crazy. This sign act that we're supposed to do reminds us of Without God's supernatural intervention in our lives, we are lost. We cannot save ourselves. It's only because of his grace that we can be saved. And here you have a bunch of rich, privileged people getting together and saying, oh, they'll come along. Let's have a good time. Let's get drunk. He says they're getting drunk. It's a part of revelry. And they had banquets back in these days, particularly like for Dionysus or Bacchus, where people would come and it was part of the party, get drunk. These people don't have the, dis the, the discernment to know the wine here is about suffering and death, not about partying and having fun. He's talking to people who absolutely lack discernment. He, uh, we're in verse 27, I believe. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup in the Lord of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Does that sound like a big deal? I don't know what's a bigger deal than that. He says, if you have this meal wrong, there are huge implications. So how should that make us feel? I got to make sure I'm doing this right. There's big implications if I do this wrong. I remember as a kid, I came to get communion every time we had it, and it was like snack time. Oh, and you had the, the grown-ups looking at you and go, oh, he's so cute. You know, that preacher's kid, he's a little precocious. Get my little snack and go to my pew and not resolve to live any different. No humility. I was a prideful young man. I'm sure that surprises you. He says, when you partake of it in an unworthy manner, you'll be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. 
when we did this in Delaware, one person didn't partake. She examined herself and she said, I can't, I can't partake today. I'm not, I'm not in the right place for this. And that might be wise. You know, some people just go, no, bring them down. You know, Jesus will figure it out. Well, Paul is saying you need to discern things so you don't put Jesus in this position. Now, the answer is not to deny communion every time we have it. It's get your act together. Quit putting off whatever you've been putting off. Quit justifying whatever you're justifying. Come in humility to the front and receive the body and the blood of he who died for you. Verse 29, for those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. That's, that's scriptural code for dying. He's saying, you know, you guys are partying and acting, you know, elite better than these others, and then so many of you are sick and dying. It's because God is mad at you. His wrath is on you. So wake up. Verse 31. What if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves? We would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So even if God's wrath is being poured out upon you, can you still repent? Yeah. He's saying sometimes he hurts you till you give up, give in. Submit. Verse 33, so then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I'll give you further directions. This is the word of the Lord. So is it a sin to eat food before having communion? No, he tells you to do it. You're, this meal that we're going to have, it's not to fill your hungry belly. It's to fill your hungry spirit. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added unto you. But if you're looking at this like snack time, if you're looking at this like the time that the cool kids, you know, oh, we Methodists, we're the best church in town, you know, everybody else is damned, we're going to have our little party here. I don't think anybody actually looks at it that way. I love the way that we're all co-equal in this body. I think we're doing communion really well. The only things that I feel uh, convicted by in this, I worry that we're not having communion enough. You know, whenever he tells us to have it as often as we drink of it, I worry about that. And then I also worry that for them it's clearly a, a meal, but we'll have this small thing and then we'll have a big potluck. And I wonder if the, the vision is that we're supposed to have a proper meal where we bless the bread, we eat together, then we bless the grape juice and we drink together. I haven't heard of many churches doing that. Other than Eastern Orthodox churches, they have a banquet every single week, but it's after they have communion. So these are just things I think about. I'm not going to say, we need to do this, and if we don't, we're going to hell. I'm going to say, this obviously matters, otherwise it wouldn't be in the scriptures. And I want to invite you to not trust me and to be part of a conversation among yourselves about how it is that we practice obedience to what we find in the scriptures. It'll be uncomfortable, and that's okay. You know, the funny thing I thought of today was, man, I'm about to faint. I'm very lightheaded, so rush up here if I'm going to, if I start looking woozy. Um... There are a lot of people who want to argue about equality in the church, but it's really kind of irrelevant because nobody wants to stand up and prophesy, right, or pray in the body of believers and speak publicly, right, and to have a bold witness, not just with the world, but with each other. And so what I wanted to urge everybody to consider is how is it that God is calling you to pray and prophesy in the community of faith? Because this isn't the Jeffrey Rickman show, is it? Worship is supposed to be the participation of the saints building each other up, so... 
The standard is now, if anybody's got a prayer to say, and if you want to prophesy, stand. If you're a woman, consider a covering on the head, but I'm not going to say, ah, oh, woman, no covering, you be quiet. I'm not going to do that. But I do think we need to take these scriptures so seriously that we reconsider the way we're doing weekly worship. Amen?